Alright, you ready? Yeah. I have goals, but they're a little amorphous. You wanna just go from there? One of my goals is just to keep moving forward. I have been writing about wine. Um, I write sometimes for a website called Sprudge Wine that focuses exclusively on natural wine. Developing that part of my life is really important. Writing more, and that's a direction that it's just, it's kind of an extension of working behind the bar. I'm there because I want to educate people, and I don't think there's enough people writing. That's the direction I'm, I'm moving in. We're sitting here at one of the places I work, the Punch Down. It's a natural wine bar here, but I just moved out here a year ago from New York. Falling wine and food, oh yeah, that's, that's what I do. Is one a bigger passion than the other? It's hard to say. So my background, where I went to school for art, I moved professionally into food and wine kind of together because I felt like there was, you know, after I built this critical language to talk about art, I felt like that was super transferable to Absolutely. talking about food, writing complexly about these things and the way they affect us um, was so much more interesting to me mm -hmm. than talking about art. It's hard to it's hard to separate food and wine, but wine is how I make my money and wine is what I spend most of my time talking about. And right now in my life wine is the focus, but you can't have wine without food. Some people it's, would say you couldn't have that, food without it's wine. It's the pairing that brings people and places together. Yeah. Two of the iconic American natural wine bars, Terroir in San Francisco and the Ten Bells in New York City had opened and then the Punchdown opened. What makes you guys stand out versus everyone else you have going around? There's a couple things that are different. One is that we're loosely a, a Georgian wine bar. So Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, is the origin of viticulture and also the origin of winemaking. They've been making wine there for 8,000 years, 8,000 consecutive years, which is also 2,500 years before the invention of the wheel. So we serve a bunch of Georgian wines here, but also the mission of the Punchdown is to educate, to not alienate other people for their taste and to bring them in and make them excited. Yeah, you, you kind of have to rely on others' tastes as much as your own. Yeah. And do you ever get a little caught up in your own taste and what you love, but have to oh, man. keep it approachable to the people that walk in the door too? Yes and no. I think one of my skills is figuring out what somebody really wants and then giving them something slightly outside of their comfort zone, but that still fits what they want. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to buying wine for my parents or for me to drink with my parents, like I'm, I'm kind of ruthless mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll make them drink really oxidative wines and funky wines. And so I think my parents are probably the, receive the brunt of my the trial and error, <laughs> my, my torture, yeah. <laughs> my natural wine torture. One of the things in, in California, and it, this also is true in other states, but one of the things that is interesting about California and selling wine here, that we have so many wineries here, and so we can buy wines directly from wineries, mm -hmm. so there's just greater access that way. And then also there's a bunch of distributors that are based here, a bunch of importers. There's Selection Missal that's based here, Percy Selections, and they are 100% natural portfolios. Uh -huh. And they're, they're some of the folks who are really leading the charge on building this community and um, have really, along with the bar owners here at Punchdown, Ordinaire, Terroir, and Ruby Wines, have really made the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, the kind of natural wine hub that it is, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Yeah. Do, do you have any levels of song? No. <laughs> um, no, I don't want to pay $500 to get, I. <laughs> to get a pin. To get a pin, yeah. But I also, like, I, I have fundamental problems with the way that, that the Court of Master Psalms works. It's 
So like Muscadet, for example. Mm -hmm. Muscadet isn't considered worth studying until you get to the master level of song, which is crazy. Old winemaking region, they make delicious wines that have a classic pairing, they're terroir, they can be terroir-driven terroir -driven wines. According to the Court of Master Psalms, they're not worth, not worth looking at. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things like that in that universe. And so the way that they've built this canon of wines and they, they've built this list of wines that they, in wine regions that they say, these are good and serious classic wines. These are the wines you should study. And it doesn't include so much of the interesting stuff going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather follow the stuff that I'm really interested in and build my knowledge. And create that, that on your own. Exactly. In the in the way that it's meant to be. Right. I it blows my mind. Another thing, another one of my issues with like the Court of Master Psalms is it's all theoretical. Mm -hmm. And I know so many people who I admire and I admire their knowledge, but they've never spent time working in a winery. And I, it's like an art historian who doesn't know how paint works. Right. It's crazy to me. You're talking a little bit about the California wine you have here. You're pouring us. So we're drinking wine from one of my favorite California wineries, uh, La Clarine Farm. Hank Beckmeyer. Shout out. Yeah. Hey, Hank. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hank Beckmeyer is the winemaker there. He and his wife, um, Caro, are living on the Sierra foothills. So it's east of Sacramento, um, kind of out in the boonies. They live in a really small town called Somerset, and they've got a flock of goats and got a farm and it's so beautiful out there. I worked harvest with them last year. So yeah, like, how, how, how was that? Um, and how many harvests have you worked? I've only worked one. And so that was your first one? But that's why I moved out to California. Right. Uh, you know, that's the, the that's, chasing the wine that's thing. That's the next step for me as well. Uh, it's so much It's so much fun, it's so exhausting, and, yeah. but I Rewarding. don't think that physical knowledge in winemaking can be emphasized enough. There were some pretty hot temperatures that rose. Yeah, 2017 is a really interesting year for California wine. Another shout out to Hank. Um, one thing that he said that's really stuck with me is because all these, these heat waves, 2017 is going to be one of those years where either the wines are low acid or they've been acidified. So this is a co-ferment between on the bottle, it says Garnacha and Mataro. Um, so you Garnacha want to talk about and We have some some nerdy guys out here, and we have some <laughs> who are still trying to learn about yeah. what it is that we're doing and drinking. You find it in in like Cote d'Or blends, mm -hmm. or like Chateau de Pop, or mm -hmm. down in Vandal. And there, it's known for making these really big, like dense, bodacious kind of uh, like earthy, spiced wines. Um, uh -huh. But increasingly in California, winemakers like like Hardy Wallace at Dirty and Rowdy, and, yeah. and, um, and also Hank and some other folks are making these elegant, bright, light, floral wines out of it. Monastrel, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. is about a quarter of the blend, and then the rest is Grenache. A kind of fun, juicy... It's from the same same region of France. Mm -hmm. um, it's like can be a really fun, juicy wine, depending on at what time of the season and how high sugar uh, it was harvested, at, like how ripe it was when it was harvested. It can make like lean light wines like the one we're drinking where it can make really kind of soft juicy low acid wine conventional winemaking people add stuff like citric acid to mm -hmm. the powder that's on the outside of gummy bears to bump up the acidity mm -hmm. the, the appearance of acidity in their wine hank to answer your question hank harvested really early i got there at the beginning of september and was there for almost the whole month they had already picked a few tons when i was there we processed 25 tons i think they had a wow. few more loads after that no forklift too it was all manual. no really <laughs> wow uh, but what the winemaking process for them looks like is we brought in grapes 
we would stomp on, stomp them, put them in buckets, um, put them into big plastic fermentation tanks that have lids. Lids. Yeah. Actually, yeah. that was the first time I've seen them in person, um, or known the presence that they that it carries now. Yeah. Versus a barrel. Plastic is really useful in winemaking. Easier to move and cheaper to buy than stainless steel is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a neutral vessel, so it doesn't add any flavor like oak does. Mm-hmm. You can stack them. A lot of the natural wineries out here, I've been seeing a lot of plastic, and a lot of conventional wineries, I've been seeing plastic. And too. you can put much more in there than you can in a barrel. Oh yeah, sizes, sizes saves time. Yeah. Is a big issue. I was wondering though, this sustainable juice into plastic—it's almost like catch twenty-two. You know? Yeah. That's so. Yeah, that's interesting, and I—that I, thought has crossed my mind before, but I haven't really put a lot of thought into it. Lately, when I've been going to wineries, my question is usually, how do you clean your winery and how often? Mm-hmm. But I might I might start asking people about how they feel on an ethical level about plastic. The way that I think about natural wine is it's always aspirational. There's no such thing as wine without intervention. Wine without intervention is grapes on the ground in a vineyard or grapes on the ground in a forest mm-hmm. that have fermented and are mm-hmm. getting eaten by deer. I think about that with like veganism too. Like, yeah. You can't be totally vegan because there's always some impact they are having on mm-hmm. on other animals, whether you can see it or not. What are what are your guys' thought process? The menu that you curate here at the Punchdown. Our menu is pretty broad. The specs have determined as works for us is pretty close in line with uh, Isabel Lejeune's definition. She's the lady who wrote the book Natural Wine. Um, she's a master of wine, and mm-hmm. she's been a real champion for natural wine and started the Raw Wine Fair and yada yada. But that is grown organically, biodynamically, unfined, unfiltered, not chemically or mechanically manipulated, hand harvested, and minimum added sulfur. There are places in the Bay Area that are like zero sulfur. A lot of the wines we have here have a little bit of sulfur. A little bit. They, you, yeah. you have to have that in there to help structure it a little bit. Yeah. So that is bare minimum. Like I said earlier, we have we always have a few Georgian wines on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, DC and Lisa have traveled to Georgia and really are interested in talking about the history and the origin of wine. So we always have a few Eastern European wines. Is that homage for them? Uh, it's the origin of winemaking. Oh, one story that a lot of people like to tell with natural wine, and I think there's a lot of health fads that do this, and also just hipster culture in general, mm-hmm. is like looking to the past for authenticity. Um, I think personally that's kind of misguided, but that's a whole different conversation. What I like to tell people when they come into the bar if they don't know what natural wine is, I'll give them that like spiel about organic, biodynamic, whatever, and then I'll say, in a nutshell, what that means is the wines here can be kind of weird. A pinot won't taste like what you expect a pinot to be, and um, most of the grapes on this list you've probably never heard of. Right. So I'm here to help you. Uh, if you can explain, if you can describe the wine that you're looking for, I can help you find it. Like you said, you want people to understand what they haven't had before. Mm-hmm. and to create that memorable experience for them. Right. You told me a little bit about how you change your menu weekly. Yeah, the wine list changes weekly. The wine list definitely changes weekly, unless DC and Lisa are out of town like they are now. <laughs> but the food menu is pretty constant. It's sort of a kind of simple wine bar, Paris bistro food. We have chicken liver pate, we have cheese and charcuterie boards. Ooh. We've got soup and salads. and, and lentil soup is phenomenal oh, today, guys. so good. Different sandwiches. We have a couple of Georgian-inspired dishes on our menu. There's a traditional kind of pate, like vegetable pate called poly, spelled mm-hmm. P-X-A-L-I. Just like with the wines, everything that goes onto our menu is organically and sustainably grown and 
we it's important to us to keep that train of thought consistent throughout the whole throughout the whole bar. Yeah, I mean, you need smart people with huge hearts and creative resources. Well, <laughs> support uh, they need to make that difference in this restaurant world. One thing that's really important to me about natural wine is talking about agriculture. And I think in many, like, one thing that is so exciting to me about being out in California, and when I hang out with winemakers, I like to listen to them talk about their vineyards and where they're getting their grapes from and, and the way they're thinking about agriculture. And I'm really interested in winemaking, but for me the most important thing is good quality agriculture. That the grapes are well grown without pesticides or anything else. You know, less harmful for us to put into our bodies. It's less harmful for the folks who are working in those fields. A vineyard sprays Roundup, those people are breathing Roundup and we're drinking Roundup. Right. That's not, you know, that's not a good look. No. Natural wine doesn't also, give you hangovers, don't you know that? <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's my friends over-serving me. <laughs> no, but it's great that I can come to a place like this and experience something that I would not be able to experience back home. <laughs> it is a model for us to go by, but in a way that we can curate for ourselves and for the Midwestern culture scene. My heart is also definitely in the Midwest. I grew up in Oklahoma, and it's so exciting to, for me to see distributors out there bringing in some of these wines that you and I were talking about earlier, like Michael Cruz's wines, then seeing folks in that area become educated because everybody cares about what they put in their body. Exactly. Even, you know, I, I worked in a wine shop in Oklahoma for a little while, a couple years ago. There's a lot of fun stuff going on, like there's a lot of wine dorks out there. Then there's a lot of, so I sold a lot of $9 bottles of wine, garbage wines. But then I also sold a lot of good wine. When I could have conversations with people about what goes into wine and how much trash goes into wine, they would spend three more dollars on a bottle of wine, which makes a huge difference. Like if you spend $14 on a bottle of Muscadet or $16 on a bottle of Beaujolais, the wine is gonna be almost infinitely better mm -hmm. than, than comparison. walking in and saying, hey, do you guys have that, bottle, that, that wine from Olive Garden? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, now I know what kind of wine Olive Garden still serves. Unfortunately, yes. How are you succeeding in a place like San Francisco? It's not easy and it's quite an accomplishment to be here for as long as you have. And we just do and are and we're here. I think DC and Lisa have created a really special place that they love the wine they serve here. They care about it. It's, you know, it's a business, but they're doing this because they love it. And I work here because I love sharing this stuff with other people. It's hard, but I think it's hard to do anything, especially if you're working in an industry out of love. One of the things that I think is most fun about working in a place like this, or even just like being around natural wine, is how many new grapes I get to taste. So I have this kind of crazy, crazy spectrum of hundreds of different grapes in my brain now. Right. Uh, between Blauer Wildbacher and Riccatzatelli and Xeno Mavro. Sometimes I wish that if I was writing a wine course, mm -hmm. how I would do it. Because some people start by region. I think in some ways starting by grape would be kind of interesting, but that's also a really flawed way to start thinking about wine. What about soil? Well, I was about to say, so Alice Firing and Pascaline Lepeltier wrote that book uh, called The Dirty, wine, Dirty Guide to Wine. Mm -hmm. It's it, That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to work for Alice and I actually, I helped proofread that book. And so that's like- Really? 
big influence on how I think about wine and how I think categorizing wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that book is awesome. Anybody who hasn't come across this book, The Dirty Guide to Wine, intro, sort of sort of an intro to wine book, but also sort yeah. of not. But it's such a pleasure to read. It is. It's a, it's a good one. I haven't finished it. I haven't read it front to back. It's so dense. But I've, I've, I've highlighted a lot of good stuff. In yeah, it's such a cool book. And it's such an important addition to the conversation on wine. Too many people use the word terroir mm -hmm. and can't really build language around what they mean by that in highly specific ways. Mm -hmm. Like, we do need to be talking more about soil and drainage, and like soil drainage. That's and, the, it's the foundation. And and uh, mycorrhizal bacteria in, in uh, vineyards. Right. Thank you for, for taking the time to drop all this knowledge to our listeners as well. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much.